This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is... How did Julius Irving become the doctor? All right, welcome back to Over and Back. I am Jason, and my very special guest today, Rainus Lattice. He is the host of the Handle podcast, and you also may know him from Twitter and YouTube as Lamar Maddock. Rainus, thank you so much for joining the program. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jason. I'm I'm very excited about doing this, and I, I appreciate the invite. Uh, I, I've been following the series myself, and you ha- guys have done a great job at discussing an era of pro basketball, which seriously lacks good content. So, yeah, it's it's great to be on. Well, I very much appreciate that, and we've we've done we're really it's been rewarding work. It's been a lot of work to do the research and to get it. Um, going but it's been i've learned a lot about uh, the league that i didn't know before and it's been nice to um share it with other people who we've gotten a lot of great feedback from uh, people who are really have been into the series so we're, we're very glad to do it uh today we're going to talk about the early career of julius irving his years in the aba with the virginia squires and the new york nets talking about how his legend was built and how he as, as the title of the show indicates how he became the doctor uh, just going a little bit through his overall ABA career, he won two MVPs and shared a third MVP in five seasons. He had two playoff MVPs during that time. He won two championships, had three scoring titles, uh, was on the all-ABA team all five seasons, the four times on the first team, and also had a defensive all-NBA appearance. Um, he was really almost the perfect example of individual artistry blended with the team game to me. He just... Had so much class, so much grace, almost a regal presence, yet he was a tireless competitor and capable of some of the funkiest and most creative and thrilling moves in basketball history. And even though he tried to leave the ABA after his first season, he really ended up being one of the strongest advocates for the league as it developed and as it became clear that it was going to be merging with the 
at the NBA, wanting to take care of other players, really cared about keeping the league alive as long as possible and getting um, all the players or as many as he could get them jobs and have the ABA um, have a good situation once it was merging with the ABA. And honestly, he really was the lifeblood of the ABA, the most important part of the history of that league. Yeah, and even though there are guys with with great resumes like uh, Roger Brown or perhaps Artis Gilmar, that that all of the stuff you said, uh, the, he he pretty much carried the league through its latter years, and he's he's Mr. ABA, and he's he's the reason why, uh, according to some people, he's the reason why the NBA just had to eventually uh, reach a merger and uh, take on these ABA franchises, at least for them. Yeah, and it's interesting, of course, that he did not have – there was very little television coverage of the ABA during his years there, yet he managed to develop this level of fame and he had these endorsements and and, and had a national profile despite – not very few fans being able to see him on at least not at least national television it, it there it's either it's hard to think of a lot of precedent for that i mean obviously the television landscape was very different in sports in the 70s but you know the most of the other players that would reach a star level would have had some level of, you know, people would have been able to see them. But, you know, Irving was very unique in the way where, you know, he almost became a great folk hero because you couldn't see him. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it's it's almost as a tragedy because uh, when we look back at some of the guys from the 60s uh, from the NBA, I mean, some someone like Wilt. Uh, there, there's the great channel. I'm sure you know of uh, the great uh, the Will Chamberlain archive, and it almost seems like there is more footage of Will Chamberlain and Chamberlain and Bill Russell than there is of uh, Dr. J and the ABA. I, it's it's pretty much about two two games uh, of his with uh, New York and uh, a couple of All Star games. So we really are missing out on what supposedly and reportedly was uh, just. A bunch of great athletic athletic feats from a guy who who was who was the best player in the league and maybe might have been the best player in the NBA as well. At least he would have competed with Kareem and then Rick Barry and and the other guys from that era. Yeah, and it's in, in terms of um, you, you know whether he was the best or not, certainly the most um, you know the most exhilarating player of, uh, of of that time. And there were a lot of you know obviously great players who did exciting things and and who were um, who captivated fans. But I, I don't think there's anything, um, at least from what I've heard, that compares to the way that Irving you know was able to um, you know br- bring in fans. Um, Huey Brown talked about how um, you know the one thing about um, Irving was that he was able to um you know, no one else in in the ABA could turn your fans against you the way that he could by just you know having a a thrilling dunk on a fast break or, or pulling off some funky move that you know no one had ever seen before he was a you know, kind of a master at um being able to um you know draw the crowd behind him and obviously give his team an advantage in those situations Oh yeah, that, that's the that's the quote from him where he uh, re- retold the stories of of telling his players that if if Julius is twenty feet from the basket and he he's in the open court, just foul him, just foul him because 
if if he if he pulls off some spectacular dunk and he sure did uh, pull off some spectacular dunks on uh, Artis Gilmar from Kentucky then the the Kentucky crowd would turn against them and it's a, it's a lost cause then absolutely um so, so the beginning of how uh, he got his name uh, there were a lot of uh, claimed reasons during the time um you know he was the 1973 complete handbook of pro basketball it says he's nicknamed the doctor because of the way he operates on the floor. Um, he actually, there are newspaper articles early on in his time in the squares that refer to him as Dr. Irving in, um, instead of Dr. J. That obviously Dr. James was popularized later. Um, when he was at Rucker Park, the commentators would call him the Claw or Black Moses, and Irving simply went over and said, Look, if you're going to call me anything, just call me the doctor. And, um, the real reason, however, is that his uh, friend in high during high school, he called him the professor, and then eventually uh, started he started to call Julius the doctor, and that sort of that name sort of stuck throughout his time in high school, and then in, in at college at UMass, and then eventually as uh, built his national name uh, going into the ABA, and there were two doctors, or there was another. Um, uh, there was a team doctor, of course, for the Virginia Squire. So the, the team trainer said, you know, to avoid confusion, we're going to call you Dr. J. And that, that name eventually uh, st- stuck with him. But it's interesting how you know, even the the origins of how that Dr. J name was um, was developed, even that there were differences sort of in um, how he and uh, how that legend was told up until you know he kind of clarified it more recently. Yeah, yeah, the stories are, are are different than many, many other. That's that's interesting to hear. Actually, I, I hadn't heard about uh, it going back to his high school days because, uh, as you said, in in loose balls, Johnny Red Kirk, Reddit's uh, center, really sojourner of the Squires. Uh, the film NBA TV did on on Julius a, a couple of years back has Julius himself discussing nicknames through the process of, of playing at the Rucker. And uh, as you said, him turning down such nicknames like the Claw, and I, I think something like a Young Hawk, at least it was uh, similar to a nickname of Connie Hawkins, something like that was, was also Hawk, turned down. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Little Hawk, yeah. So yeah, the the origin the origins of his nickname have various backstories. I hadn't heard about this one, so yeah, that's that's a great find out. Yeah. And, you know, he was a relative unknown coming out of college. I mean, he played at a, a small university and um, hadn't really been on national TV. I mean, the, the idea of college games being on national TV was still a relatively new idea. Um, but his legend initially grew out of playing at New York's Rucker Park, which was a league where uh, a lot of the pro- the best pros of the time would play and they would mix with a lot of streetball legends. Um, Irving, his first... Um, time he played in Rucker Park was was he had signed with the Squires but had yet to play in the NBA so he was coming out of his junior year of college he he left early and he teamed with his future teammates uh Charlie Scott and Billy Paltz also um Hawthorne Wingo who was a famous Rucker Park player and would uh, compete against guys like um Nate Archibald uh, Clyde Frazier Earl Monroe Willis Reed Pee Wee Kirkland uh, a mix of guys with uh you know NBA uh, credentials and with um who were famous because of Rucker Park. Um, and he talked about how he uh, playing at Rucker allowed him to really feel free for the first time. He felt like the, the chains were coming off. He, you know, he, it's absurd to think about now, but he wasn't even allowed to dunk in college. And can you imagine his game without being able to dunk? And at this point, he is a more, you know, he's a raw type player. He, um, 
he defend, depends more on his rebounding and his athleticism isn't much of a shooter yet. So he's really, um, you know, a, a different style player to what he would become later as, you know, the, the primary uh, scorer on his team and, you know, in his ability to uh, shoot the jumper very important to his game. But at this point, it's much more raw. But he talks about this and also feeling the intense emotional connection with the record audience and this kind of giving him a sense of the you know you know adding to the artistic um aspect of his game and wanting to you know kind of push the boundaries of the type of moves that he could have and the type of um uh, you know the, the way that he would interact with the crowd he, he, the way that he put it i start to get pretty freaky with my dunks and, and learns to sort of give the crowd a show although careful in these situations not to give them the whole show to not you know um realizing that of course he's going to have to play professionally and um not to extend himself too much yeah what, what i love is that just everything about him is so 70s you you can't imagine a a, a draft pick even though he wasn't that's well coveted, but at, at that, a draft pick who, who who has a contract with a professional team going to p- play at the rocker before his first pro year and uh, competing in these uh, competitive games and having uh, other pros around there. And obviously the same the same applies to his college career. I I, I think that in the 30, 21st century, we, we would have highlights on him on on uh, various platforms uh, like YouTube and uh, his potential would be more well known. But yeah, b- back then you don't make the the recruiting services and uh, you don't get some five-star rating and you you just uh, sort of fly under the radar and uh, the people with the connections, uh, the ones who scour, scour for talent, they, 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 they found at least some of them. But uh, who knows, maybe there, there were other players who didn't make it to the pros just because it, it wasn't uh, the AAU system wasn't that developed and then yeah it, the coverage of college players wasn't that developed as well yeah and, and not to mention of course the the, the still at, at a point where the opportunities for a lot of african-american players are, are are lessened you know because of the um you know kind of the hierarchy of the leagues and um even though that's changing by the uh, late 60s certainly um that aspect of it is important just the you know it's harder for people with disadvantaged economic backgrounds to to be in the league and um you know there's all part of that huge societal upheaval that's changing the landscape of the league certainly um you know it's it's still evolving um this is also a time where the afro becomes a big part of his image he, he, he does grow it out and he um you know it, it certainly attracts attention and attracts people uh, to him uh, he talks about in his book um which i really recommend it's a, it's a very um it's a very good book um his autobiography there's a very good um audio book version of it as where well where he actually narrates it which is a a good way to um consume it i guess um, and he talks about having to spend a half an hour some mornings to get it right because you know, the the look is very important, and also sharing hair tips with Darnell Hillman, who was you know, one of the few players who actually had a bigger <laughs> afro than uh, than he did. So I, I guess they had a lot of lots to talk about uh, as far as that goes. So uh, did we ever have? Uh, I don't know. Did, did, was it ever confirmed that uh, Julius was also in the se- the seventy seven award, uh, competing at least for the award which Darnell Hillman uh, won for the best afro in the, in the 
from the former ABA players. I, I heard that a couple of episodes ago on, on this show. Uh, yeah, you know, I, that, I, honestly, I, I'm not sure. I mean, he would have had to be a contender. I mean, Artis obviously would be up there as well. Um, yeah, those are the three Afros that really stand out to me in the league. I mean, there, there were some other good ones, but the, those three are um, – it, it's hard to top. That, that's your – uh, that that's definitely your 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 gold and silver and bronze for uh, afros in the ABA. I would have to say. Yeah, and three good players also. Uh, three great pay- players. Yes. Well, obviously Hill- Hillman's a category, category below, but three great players at that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, he's also he first develops his friendship with uh, Frazier uh, during this time. Um, he gets fitted with some uh, fancy suits uh, at Clyde's Taylor, and these are. He describes them as old Jewish and Italian guys with no signs on the door, and he basically gets the same. Um, he does get the same uh, types of suits as Frazier does, but he likes to have more conservative prints. He's not quite as colorful as uh, Frazier is, and that, that sort of indicates to me uh, um, Irving's personality is interesting because it's a very much a mix of he, he he's very conservative in a lot of ways and very um, he doesn't like to make waves. Isn't necessarily a guy who speaks out a lot or is a guy who he he doesn't necessarily demand the type of superstar treatment or attention that a lot of guys too, but yet he he does have this incredible you know flair for his style of play and um and and does care very much about um bringing the uh he, he wants to bring the playground style of game but refined to um to the aba and later the nba that that does become very important to him so i, I do think that that mixture of um that, that mixture of philosophies and styles i think is very interesting not to jump ahead, as as uh, we'll get there, uh, uh, and to the towards the end of the show. But uh, the the quotes from Kevin Lockery in uh, Lewis Balls really reminded me of Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich. That someone as as loud and and demanding as Lockery could uh, chew out everyone on his team, and that included uh, Dr. J, and that he wouldn't mind it. So, yeah, he in, in a way he he reminded me of Duncan, uh, where. That he could uh, he could face criticism and uh, he he didn't mind being yelled at in front of the team. So uh, that obviously had had to help those New York Nets teams, which won two titles. Yeah, and that takes a certain. I mean, it, it, it's hard if you have the power to not be yelled at, to not you know, um, to not use that power. I mean, it, I, I I do think no one likes to be yelled at, and, and you know, if you have the ability to. You know, if you're if you're bigger than the coach or you know if you're the big superstar and you can avoid that um i i think the fact that um you know duncan and irving are both secure enough as people to accept that and accept that you know that um allowing that enables your team to be better that, that's a pretty special thing to have you know not a lot of people can uh can do that in any kind of walk of life yeah, and he not to mention that he's bigger the bigger than the coach. He's he's bigger than than the rest of the league, and he still takes it. So that's that's really admirable. Yes, absolutely. Um, so are there any? Um, I've got a few here, but are there any of you know stories of you know spectacular dunks or other types of plays that stand out to you, whether it's from loose balls or anything else that you've um that, that you've read or seen of uh you know his ABA career. Um, the the one which I, I don't think it was in loose balls at least I I read it uh, on another place on, on the internet it's, it's this uh, blog called I, I might mess it up I think it's twenty second timeouts.blogspot.com it's this it seems like this is a random little page but you get the most awesome 
uh, in-depth articles on there, specifically about the the seventies and eighties. And uh, there, there's this story about the '72 NBA ABA All-Star Game, the, the second of the Super Games. And uh, unfortunately, the, the recording, which has survived until today, uh, doesn't have the fourth quarter, and that's that's hardly convenient, given that that's the most important quarter in basketball. And uh, supposedly, Julius uh, uh, took down a rebound, uh, dribbled around. Uh, the, whether it was Oscar Robertson or, or, or Charlie Scott or both of them, the, the counts vary. He certainly took on uh, a couple of a- NBA guys and uh, drove the length of the court and uh, dunked nearby from at least uh, somewhere near from the free throw line and uh, slammed it down with this power that uh, even the AB- ABA guys uh, who knew him at least from, from one season and, and the ABA, even they were astonished. But like I said, we we have the recording of the game, and uh, and just just as it's the story with with everything from the ABA, we have this we have the story, but not the actual footage. So that's the one I, I wish I we could see because uh, the other three quarters are there, and and it would have and it came in this in this important game for the ABA guys because obviously they wanted to prove themselves and and came up short both times. Uh, there's a few that stand out to me. Um, there's it, it's described. I, I don't know if it's the first preseason game or, or it's definitely the you know in his first season in the preseason, and he has a slam dunk over um, Artis Gilmore and Dan Issel, and um, and Julius describes it as you know he, he's going up and up and up and sort of hanging there, and then as he sees the hand come down, it's over, and he you know he has a, he has a big slam over um, over Artis Gilmore. Um, there's another one against the, um, against the Pacers where he has a floating move or sort of, it starts around Darnell Hillman and then Mel Daniels comes over and he, he gets around him and then Roger Brown tries to defend it. And it's, it's sort of this ends up almost under the basket, but he's able to spin the ball high off the glass under the basket, no look. Uh, type of amazing uh, type play and um, Adolph Rupp the uh, legendary Kentucky coach uh, he he, Irving tells a story where he told him that he was the first player where he was okay with him making a decision after his after leaving his feet it had been his his philosophy his entire career to not tell players to do that but he said after watching you I think I've changed my mind so um there's a, I, 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 it was a rival coach or general manager. I forgot to write down who, but um, there's, they were talking about uh, accusations of the fact that Irving was, you know, walking as he was heading toward the basket, and then his reply was, <laughs> "Yeah, he takes four steps in the air." So, um, uh, that's that's one of my uh, favorite quotes as well. And then there's uh, one last one with a, a George Irvine, who was his teammate on the Squires, and says he one time there was in warmups he was doing his thing where he'd throw the ball off the backboard, grab it with one hand, and dunk back over his head. It was a totally new dunk for him or anyone else. And he said, Irvine said, "Doc, where'd you come up with that one?" And he said. Last night I had a dream and I saw myself do it. I never tried it until today. And then Irvine was just like he even makes up dunks in his dreams. You know, just uh, um, you know, incredulous at the idea that uh, you know at, at the amazing skill that he had that you know seemed seemingly came natural to him. Yeah, that story is classic. And what what I love about all of these accounts is is that almost the, the guys from that era, mostly the coaches, they they don't even have the words to describe the plays. It's you you read a quote and uh, you I, at at some points I I just can't follow follow their way of thinking I I can't imagine because it usually goes like that 
Julius went up in the air. He he flew. He flew by this one guy. He flew by this next guy. Then he somehow already under the rim, and he turned and. Uh, I, I think it. I think it really took everybody, uh, everybody back because they hadn't seen anything like that. So it's impossible for them to describe something they hadn't seen before, and and we, we won't ever see how it happened because of the lack of footage. So when he came to the Squires, um, the coach Al Bianchi and the general manager uh, Red Kerr, I, I, neither had ever I'd seen him in, in person before he signed. They had grainy footage from an NIT game, I think, against North Carolina, but other than that, they had not seen him before. So and they gave him a you know pretty substantial contract to sign with the team. Uh, basically, the, the Earl Foreman, the owner, had you know somebody mentioned it at a party, and then he talked to an assistant coach in Maine, uh, near you know in the area where near Massachusetts, where Irving was playing school. And then after hearing good things from him, took Silver Magazine just to kind of get a sense, you, you know, looking at how he was rated, and that was basically the kind of scouting system that he you know that they had in 1971, especially in the ABA, operating on a shoestring. The you know, it's it, 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 excuse me. It's it's quite um, amazing that you know out of this, out of just all these, uh, you know, having very little, they're able to they invest so much into him, and you know they they see and uh, that it works so amazingly well for for them and for him in his career. And they one thing that everyone points out when they first see him is the size of his hands. That you know his his hands are so amazingly big that he you know can can palm the ball in in ways that no one else can, and you know, can hold it at angles that no one else can because just of the size of his hands are able to give him this ball control that no one else um actually has and they describe his i think it was bianchi describing his finger his fingers as he has the fingers of a pianist or a surgeon and then not long after um his first uh tryout camp uh, bianchi told journalists you're gonna think i'm crazy but one day julius Irving will be in the hall of fame yeah and uh, uh kudos to l foreman because he he was he was the one and and some of these stories who followed these uh, these these connections and then took shots at 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 guys who weren't well known and uh, it it worked out it worked out for the best for for Virginia at least in, in the short term and guess what yeah they they both both of them both uh, Julius and Gervin uh, did become Hall of Famers as as Al Bianchi thought they, they that at least Julius would be. So going on to the 72 Squires, uh, they were a 45-win team um, with a .56 SRS. The year before, they'd actually been 55-29. and 29. They'd had It was Charlie Scott's rookie year where he was co-rookie of the year. Uh, Doug Moe also there toward the end of his career. Uh, Ray Scott, who was a, a pretty good big man from the uh, NBA. And uh, Jim Eakins, who would uh, end up being a pretty solid big man for the uh, Squires and later would join um, Dr. J on the Nets. Uh, mostly a running team, not much of a defense. Um, but uh, yeah, at first, as we mentioned, he wasn't uh, a finished product at all. Uh, his game was built on rebounding. Ray Scott actually helped him with his uh, jump shot. Uh, gave him a um, told him that the key was not to jump so high, and you know, as long as you get it over, it doesn't matter if you jump um, three feet or six inches. You know, just the idea of getting to the same release point and to you know, I just get it over somebody that he felt that helped him develop a consistent jumper that made him into, you know, a, a great player. They traded George Carter, who was a, had been an all-star that year, was a good player to make room for him immediately realizing, okay, this guy is going to be tremendous for us. Um, 
they, they were sort of an up and down team for most of the year. And the, the, the big event that happened uh, toward the end of the season with nine games left is Charlie Scott uh, was frustrated with the ABA. He abruptly left the team a few weeks before the end of the regular season. Um, he was the leading scorer in the in, in the game at the time, jumped to Phoenix, uh, a, a big loss for the ABA and particularly for the Squires. And um, he, there was never like a confrontation between the two of them, but this is sort of an interesting. It's it, it's one of several cases in Irving's career where he joins a team with an established star, and there's some uh, some tension over whose team, who's going to control the team, who's going to actually be in charge of the team. And you know, Scott left the team at least in part because of. You know, having to, um, you, you know, being overshadowed by, you know, uh, by Irving as a star and as a great player. And, and it really was a, a crazy good and unexpected season from Charlie Scott, during during which he averaged thirty four point six points per game. I, I'd even say that if someone asked you a trivia question about the guys who averaged more than thirty four season in the ABA, he, he's probably the only player you wouldn't get with Rick Barry and Irving and Connie Hawkins. And, and Dan Issel being more obvious choices, and w- with him bailing about uh, 20 days before the playoffs and joining the Suns, probably that's what kept the Squires from 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 going even farther than they they did. Yeah, and they they swept the Floridians um, in the Eastern Division series. The Floridians had uh, Matt Calvin, Warren Jabali, and Larry Jones, some s- smaller guards. Of course, Jabali played bigger. Um, Irving scored 53 points in uh, the third game of the series and averaged uh, 37.7 points per game and more than 20 rebounds per game. Uh, incredibly, um, Irving was a out, really outstanding uh, rebounder um, early on in his career. That, that's what sort of kind of go away as he um, a, as he got older and was, was probably asked to you know play away from the basket more. Um, but his his rookie season, he had 27.3 points per game and 15.7 rebounds per game, and it would average a double figures in rebounds all five years of his career in the um, ABA, and would you know, average um, you know up until in '81 he averaged eight uh, rebounds per game, and then would be you know below seven for the for the rest of his career as he would get older. But he was a uh, especially great rebounder early on in his career, and was still pretty good skill up until his early 30s. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a thing you would find with most uh, small forwards that uh, rebounding is something that you do very well at in your first years of career when you still have the bounce in, in your knees and you, you maybe play a, a bit more in a bit more uh, I don't know careless fashion. But fifteen point seven is is something that uh, you can you can't just explain with that. I, that's that's amazing considering the fact that yeah, as you mentioned he was more more so uh, around seven or eight in the nba and uh, probably pace has something to do with as a as well i i, I haven't looked at it but i i would uh, i would think that the squires of 72 played a bit, bit faster than the sixers would do in the 80s uh, yeah i I'm, I'm pretty sure that is the case they were definitely known as a running team so that would that would that would certainly make sense so um so they, then they ended up playing the Nets uh, in the Eastern Division Finals. Uh, Rick Barry had played, had previously played uh, with the well, with with the Washington Capitals team that preceded the Squires. When they moved to Virginia, Barry did not want to go there and uh, ended up forcing a trade to um, to the Nets. Uh, the Nets also had uh, D- John Roach. Uh, Billy Poltz and uh, Bill Melchione. Uh, Poltz and Melchione, well, actually, all, all three would would be uh, teammates with. Um, Irving soon in in a couple years once when Irving joined the Nets, um, 
So, I mean, this is notable. It's it's the only playoff series between uh, Barry and Irving. Barry, this would he would uh, leave for the um, he would leave for the NBA soon after this. Um, the Nets had upset a 68-win Kentucky Colonels team, so the, giving the Squires home court advantage. And the Squires actually took an, a 2-0 lead in the uh, series. They they dominated Game One, 138 to 91. And then the series was delayed for nine days because there was issues with getting the um, the, the Nets Arena was a book, and they um, had issues with getting a replacement for it. So they did not. Uh, they ended up delaying it until Nassau Coliseum was uh, available again, and. That uh, George Irvine and Doug Moog were hurt during that time. Um, Bill Melchioni, who had been hurt, got healthy, and that kind of changed things around. It, it did go to um, the the Nets even it up at two games apiece. Then they traded victories in games five and six to even things at three three. Um, Irving during one of these games actually had thirty two rebounds uh, during this series. Um, and then in game seven in Virginia, he had thirty five points, but the Nets were able to pull out the game ninety four to eighty eight. And Rick Barry banked in a three pointer near the end of the game to uh, clinch it. So uh, he uh, led the league in um, in the playoffs with thirty three point three points per game and twenty point four rebounds per game, both of which um, it were you led the league in postseason play. Uh, George Irvine also um, uh, shot very well during the um, during that time. He had a sixty six percent field goal percentage. So uh, so you know for, for a rookie season, um, even though the uh, Nets were a slightly worse regular season team, you, you would certainly take that as a you know pretty stout accomplishment, especially after they lost you know their their leading scorer uh, just a few weeks before the playoffs began. Yeah, I, I I tend to take these stories, but in particular, these are the players of their of their own team describing their their own series of bad luck. I, I tend to take them with a grain of salt, but in this case, it it really does seem like the nine day layoff. Uh, Heard them because they they won by forty seven in the first game. They it, a nine point win in the second game, and then it does seem like they might have squeezed past them even without Charlie Scott. But it it probably was a year too early anyway because uh, I don't think they could have beaten the Indiana Pacers in the finals, who were in in that uh, mid midpoint of uh, their veteran careers. Roger Brown and Mel Daniels is, is getting older, but they also have. A, a George McGinnis uh, able body, a, a young guy. So I, I don't think they would have stand a chance, stood a chance against them in the finals. Yeah, and that would have. This was kind of you know one of two opportunities that I can think of of the uh, of the Nets and Pacers to be able to play in the finals. The uh, Irving never, or actually, well, in this case, the Squires. But either way, Irving's team to play against the Pacers in the finals that that never happened. Irving never played the Pacers in a um, in a playoff series. That would have been interesting to kind of see. You know the. Um, you know the perennial team of the of most of the ABA versus their you know the the premier star, and we never uh, had that. I guess we, it, we never would be have been able to see it anyway. So I don't know how much we actually lost, but it's you know, um, <laughs> but it's interesting. Especially when uh, Julius would have gone up against the George McGinnis, if, if, if at least it ha- happens before the seventy six season, when George was already in, in the in the NBA. Right. But yeah, especially the, the year when they were co MVPs, it, it would have made the most sense if they had had the, had the opportunity to play against each other. But 
so it's never happened yes yes so um so earl foreman um he he will not renegotiate the um irving's contract even though they they agree that irving he deserves more money after you know establishing himself as a superstar but irving does say i don't plan to spend the rest of my career with virginia so uh, he he won't renegotiate the deal irving's also frustrated with his first agent who he felt was working with the aba at the same time as representing him which was which was definitely was an issue um there were agents that were uh double dipping so to speak um early on that was a complaint that you know uh, people in the aba and the nba both had about uh agents so uh, irving eventually decides to with his new agent decides to sign with the atlanta hawks um agrees to a five-year 1.5 million dollar contract there are lawsuits of course uh going on uh, during this time um the squires sue saying they have a valid contract also during this time the milwaukee bucks draft irving the nba still was not um, drafting underclassmen at this point but he would have been a senior had he stayed in college so he was eligible for the nba draft and the bucks had two first round picks so they decided we'll go ahead and draft him uh wayne embry had um who was bucks general manager he had um experience with irving actually played him in a um a pickup game as a high schooler in which irving almost destroyed him with uh with embry being an nba uh, you know player with the celtics during that time so uh, so he knew him. Um, they decided, you know, we'll take the chance, and we have two first-round picks. We might as well just use one on him. Um, however, Irving doesn't think that um, being the number three star on the Bucks behind Kareem and um, and Oscar Robertson is a very good idea. So he decides to play with the Hawks, and he ends up actually playing a couple of exhibition games with the Hawks, and really speaks highly about playing with Pete Maravich. Really impressed with his strength and his size and his speed and. Um, Learns a lot about fast break basketball during the time in which they play together. They play a lot of one-on-one games together, and they really feel like they um, match each other move for move. And of course, you know one of the great um, you know what ifs in basketball history, especially if you're a Hawks fan, is which I am uh, wondering what you know if um, Irving had jumped to the NBA this and having him and Maravich together along with um, Lou Hudson and Walt Bellamy, who was still a pretty strong big man even though he was aging at this point how that would have changed the course of a basketball history it wouldn't have been good for the um, aba it may not have even been good for irving but it certainly is a interesting imagination uh, exercise to wonder you know what how that combination you know particularly maravich and irving would have been during that time then it might have saved pete maravich's career as as well then obviously the team would have been better but given how Maravich's mood was affected by not not getting along with other players and not playing winning basketball. I mean, ha- having someone like Julius Irving running the wing for him and he's the he's the perfect target for all of the passes he could have thrown. I it might have uh, might have played a positive influence on Maravich's career and uh, who knows maybe his his life and the ultimate as well. Yeah. And um, he played in two exhibition games against... They both were against ABA opponents, ironically. He never actually played an exhibition game against an NBA team. It was the Colonels and the uh, Cougars. Uh, eventually, the, the courts ruled that he had to honor his prior contract with the Squires. And also, the NBA office ruled in favor of the Bucks. Um, so, at this point, they were being... Um, I believe they were being fined $25,000 a game, so... Uh, the Hawks decided to give up, and a federal judge issues an injunction um, prohibiting Irving from playing for any other team other than Virginia. So he 
uh, goes back to the squires. Uh, the, the, the case is technically thrown into arbitration, and it, it'll be resolved after um, he plays the 73 season with the uh, squires. When he joins, they're 0-4 when he starts. Uh, he feels like they don't quite have the same chemistry. They lose uh, Mo and Ray Scott, who were you know their, their key veterans at this point, mostly a young team. Um, and uh, they're 42-42 and 42 with a negative .29 SRS. Um, he does mention that there were not really hard feelings with uh, Earl Foreman. You know, both of them just thought it was just business, and he even lived at his house during the uh, second season with Foreman. He was usually away, didn't, not living at the house, so that he and his wife shared. He actually uh, lived there for rent-free while uh, during his second season. So I guess Earl Foreman was a forgiving guy. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, same same goes for Julius. I mean, is there even anything bad you can say about his ABA stint? Everyone seems to. Everyone seems to love the guy, respect the guy, and he, he almost did, did no wrong. Um, so this is notable for George Gervin joining the team uh, late. Uh, he he uh, was uh, thrown off of um, his uh, Eastern Michigan team for fighting, but uh, he ended up uh, being another uh, Squires at Discovery um I believe uh, Red Kerr also uh, through a um, through former Syracuse Nationals teammate George King um, discovered him, and um, they end up playing together for 28 games toward the end of the season. Also, um, Irving describes their one-on-one games um, during the uh, during the season as well. So you guys have played one-on-one games against Pete Maravich and George Gervin, uh, all within the uh, same calendar year or so. Um, they would lose to the Colonels four games to one in the um, in the division semifinals. Uh, the Colonels with with Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, and uh, Louis Dampier having a uh, were a much better regular season team during that time. With the the um, Colonels will make the finals and lose to the uh, Pacers during that time. So, Gervin and Ir- Irving on the same team is, is the obvious thing. When you when you look back at it, the, the minutes they might have played together were probably the, the most unusual thing back then. They are, they are like two unicorns. Uh, here you have this uh, six seven rail thin wing in Gervin who possesses uncanny scoring and and, and sim- just movement abilities for for a player of his height. And obviously Irving, who's the most athletic player on the on the planet, probably. I I mean. That was so ahead of its time that it that it, it's it's in a way it's in, uh, unbelievable that they got the opportunity to play on the same team. I mean, they they would be a, a wing duet of Gervin and Irving could could probably play today. It, it and they would still be something to something to I don't know appreciate very highly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I. I, I... That would be, of course, a fascinating thing to see. We're lamenting, of course, a lot of things that we didn't get a chance to see, but that would be uh, that would be tremendous as well. Um, and uh, sh- shortly about Johnny Kerr, uh, have you ever read the the Harry Potter books? Uh, the, there's this uh, one thing they had that the uh, person a person was uh, able to store his memories in that basin, and if he had one, it seems like Johnny Red Kerr was was the uh, was the person who should have one. I mean. That guy saw Michael Jordan his whole career. He played with a young Will Chamberlain, and he saw Julius in the ABA, and also Gervin as well. I think he, he has the things we're most not deprived of, of by not having much footage of. So yeah, he he was a lucky man if if you consider the things he saw and uh, what he experienced. That, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I, I hadn't, I knew those things individually, but I hadn't quite put them together until uh, you mentioned that. So that's um, uh, that's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, uh, so he is traded to the Nets. Um, 
Roy Bo, the Nets owner, wants a replacement for Rick Barry, who was left for the um, the NBA, as we mentioned. Virginia uh, has financial at this point. Um, he, he ends up agreeing to, to go to the team after negotiating with Bo. There's a big settlement involving the Squires and Hawks and Bucks, and all of them uh, get various uh, money and draft picks and things to get it settled. The official trade between the Nets and the um, and the Squires is Irving and Willie Sojourner, who he was who he was a rookie with on the Squires. They end up at the Nets for George Carter, who he originally actually had been traded who had been traded away originally from the Squires to the Nets to make room for Irving. So the irony there, and also the rights to Kermit Washington, who never played in the ABA and one million dollars. Um, and then Irving signs a big contract with the Nets that the Squires could never have afforded. Although it turns out the Nets actually struggled to pay it too, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, and uh, this sort of shows sort of the issues with the regional franchise idea in general. We talked about, I talked about that with Rich in a previous show, but basically Virginia would have to sell off all their stars, you know, Barry Irving and later Swen Nader and, and, and George Gervin. And the team would really be terrible in the ABA's final seasons, barely hanging on before folding a month before the merger, which is unfortunate because the Squires definitely had um, they had some very good times and they had some very good players and teams and, and you know could have potentially you know things had turned just a little bit um, you know could have could have won a championship or you know certainly uh, made a finals and, and and been you know more embedded even if they didn't survive the merger they still could have been embedded more in the memory other than just being this team that you know all these great players began at and then you know never um and then didn't last yeah it's, it's unfortunate that they didn't have one of the owners who was willing to spend money at, at least at least for a couple of years and in the meantime, it was really fortunate for the ABA that they had an owner like Roy Boo at the time who could pay a million dollars for Julius because they were, in a way, they were bidding bidding against the NBA. And if this summer had happened at the wrong time, where during which most of the owners are are scrambling for money, they they could have lost him just because of that. Uh, although I guess uh, Angelo Drossos and the Spurs might have been crazy enough to to keep spending, so may, maybe. The Spurs would be the ones who might have stayed with the league, but other than Roy Boo, I, I, I'm not certain whether there is another another team who would have uh, had the money to take on Julius in, in the summer of '73. So it might have saved the ABA and uh, and kept them living for another three years. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And yeah, the, the ownership in general. I mean, I, I I would imagine maybe John White Brown. It's a possibility because he he had some deep pockets, although it wasn't you know was. And spent them to a degree for a while until you know the team started to lose money. But yeah, I, I would imagine that uh, you're right that Bo was definitely the the, the one um, team that had that chance. It, it was also important for. I mean, it was it, everyone agreed that it was important for Irving to stay in the league because um, at this point, you know, even by this point, it was obviously that he was the most important player. And um, and the fact that he was coming home, he had he had grown up in um, in Long Island and, and played uh, you know in, in that area, and so the fact that he was coming home would also potentially bring some attention to the league as you know being the hometown star. Um, it didn't quite work out as well as they were hoping for, although it, it obviously he did bring the uh, team some attention. Rainus and I went a bit long in our conversation, so we decided to split it into two parts. So check out our next episode for discussion on Dr. J's championship years with the New York Nets in the last days of the ABA. Also, check out Rainus's The Handle podcast and his Lamar Maddock Twitter account and YouTube channel. 
You can find us at harborparoxysm.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. We would greatly appreciate a review if you are enjoying our podcast. And uh, also we are on Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.